The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. February 14th, 1929. Valentine's Day. Seven men are gunned down in a Northside Chicago garage. A gangland mass murder that was the culmination of a bloody decade of violence between primarily Irish and Italian gangsters fighting for control of Chi-Town's bootlegging, prostitution, gambling, and the incredible amount of money that went along with it all. Mob kingpin Al Capone's illegal income alone was estimated at $100 million a year in the 1920s. All right, And that's 1920s money. By 1929, his empire is estimated to have been worth $1.3 billion in today's dollars. But like all real gangsters... He wanted more. He always wanted more. It was never enough, and he was never going to ask for more. He was going to take it. And he sure as shit wasn't going to let any other gangster take it from him. So from time to time, somebody had to die. And from 1924 to 1929 in Chicago, a lot of people died. 16 gang-related murders in 1924, increasing each year, leading to 64 gang murders in 1929, and hitting a bloody, gory crescendo on Valentine's Day. Find out who died, find out why they died, what led up to all the killings, and what happened afterwards in this bloody, Tommy gun-infested, shotgun-to-the-face Valentine's Day edition of Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, everybody, and happy Valentine's Day, Time Suckers. Happy, happy Valentine's Day week. Even if you're alone this Valentine's Day, you, you can still get sucked with some time suck. I, I know it's not the same, but it's better than nothing. I'll be your Valentine's. I'll be your strange, information-obsessed, kind of creepy-looking Valentine's. Oh, Valentine's Day. The American straight man's least favorite holiday. Contrived romantic pressure. Helping Hallmark push, the, push them, some shitty greeting cards on everyone. Making that, making that greeting card money. Helping keep the Rose Farmers employed, you know. Well, as you scramble to, to grab overpriced flowers, buy some sappy car that makes you a little nauseous, and panic as you realize you forgot to make dinner reservations yet again. Let this episode be a little sweet, very unromantic relief. And ladies, I know many of you, if not most of you, also do not like this holiday. Right? You don't care about getting a dozen roses that cost 50 bucks this week, even though they cost 15 bucks last week. You know, any more than we want to buy them. So let's all take a break from the sap, and let's get into some dirt. But before we dig into Chicago, uh, thank you so much for all the iTunes reviews. Wow, uh, pouring in. If somehow you missed it, um, a thank you bonus episode for reaching 200 iTunes reviews uh, came out this past Friday. Uh, a big episode on Roswell, Area 51, alien abductions, and more. Uh, it was very fun to do. Big extraterrestrial extravaganza. And, uh, and if the Pacey's reviews are coming in, uh, there's going to be another bonus episode uh, probably coming soon. That's entirely up to you guys. But, it, but uh, it looks like it may be coming up quicker than I thought. And it's uh, going to be on the origins of the Third Reich, Hitler's terrifying rise to power. 
Uh, I think that'll be fascinating. Also, uh, if you haven't gotten back, if, if I, sorry, if I haven't gotten back to your messages and comments this past week, I do apologize. Uh, I've been super slammed. Two episodes to work on instead of one. A lot of stand updates, a lot of shows this past week. Uh, trying to be a good husband, dad, puppy dad. Uh, it's kept me insanely busy. So I will get back to all of you uh, soon. And, and thanks for caring enough just to write me in the first place. And big thanks to Nate from Wisconsin for leaving this topic suggestion uh, in a comment on iTunes a while back. I noticed it, didn't forget. Brent Hall uh, also emailed me about hating Valentine's Day. Uh, (laughs) Many of you have also written in about some kind of gangsters episode, uh, so hopefully this fulfills that as well. And uh, and keep sending those topic suggestions, man. Just uh, understand it may take me a while before I can get to yours. You know, I have a backlog of a couple hundred right now, which is awesome. So I'm very thankful, uh, and I never know which one's going to grab me any given week. Sometimes uh, the suggestion that comes in right when I'm sitting down to the computer to work on an episode is, is the one I end up going with. That was, uh, that was Houdini, actually. I had a totally different thing in mind, and I was like, what, what, huh? And then went, went that direction, and then lost four days of my life. But I, I'm grateful. It was a fun four days to lose. All right, let's get into this shit. I had no idea, uh, first off, that Chicago was a huge city in the 1920s, as big as it is today, which sounds crazy to me. The U.S. Census Bureau listed Chicago's population for the decade ending in 2010 as 2,695,000 people. In 1920, it was 2.7 million. That's, that's insane to me. Like, for comparison, L.A. County had 576,000 people in 1920, 9.8 uh, million people in 2010. And uh, it definitely fascinates me as I record this episode, because I actually am recording this episode in Chicago, and I've been doing my research at a coffee shop uh, less than a mile from where those gangsters died on that ill-fated Valentine's Day. So it just, uh, it feels a little extra intense to think about, you know, back in Old Town Chicago, like, you know, right where I am, that it was the same hustle and bustle then that it is now. There was the same uh, large crowds, you know, moving through the streets, I don't know. I just I could just picture it in my mind, you know, these these fucking gangsters milling around in a in a real city, like a big big urban area and controlling it. Uh that just is so intense to think about. And uh and just like Chicago is constantly making headlines for gangs and murders today, you know, even getting the nickname Chirac, Chicago was a murder murder capital, excuse me, uh, back then as well. And by 1929, uh Chicago citizens uh were pretty used to gang murders. But the bloodshed on Valentine's Day, 1929, was too much even for them. Too much for them. Uh, a line was, was crossed. But be, before we examine that day, let's examine the events that led up to it. Figure out why Chicago became associated with gangsters in the first place and what events led directly uh, and indirectly to the St. Valentine's Day massacre. So let's jump into a time suck timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time suck timeline. All right, let's go uh, all the way back to 1850. Uh, apparently, part of Chicago's gangland history has to do with parts of it being built on a marshy, muddy, just kind of lakeside terrain. Uh, early Chicago uh, was apparently so muddy that the initial city planners decided to raise much of the city uh, roughly 10 feet on average up out of the muck. Like, like raising buildings, actual foundations up, you know, up to like 15 feet in places in the 1850s. Besides just, just being awesome, uh, I didn't even know that was fucking possible. I didn't know that was possible to do now, let alone in 1850. I don't know a lot about urban construction. Uh, this created, but this, what this did is it created an entire network of tunnels and underground kind of rooms all over uh, downtown Chicago, which led directly and pretty quickly to a, a literal criminal underworld. Like the gangsters, like they literally came up out of the muck, fucking from beneath the city. How cool is that? Like, like actual demons rising up from some literal hell. Uh, early Chicago criminals are rising up from beneath the city. It's like some Gotham Batman shit. I love it. I mean, I, I wouldn't love it if I was walking around alone downtown in 1860, you know, Chicago or something. But I love knowing about it now. And uh, this underground area, uh, according to one of the sources I found, uh, said it's where the very term underworld comes from. Who, who knew that didn't just come from Kate Beckinsale's uh, master fucking franchise where she wears super tight uh, leather outfits and beats people up, and I love it. Um, yeah, but underworld did not come from Kate Beckinsale. Uh, I, I did know that, but I didn't know where it came from. And initially, initially, this underworld uh, was controlled by English saloon owner. Uh, what a fun title. I'm an, I'm an English saloon owner. Uh, Roger, Roger Plant. 
who would occasionally time travel uh, to perform in his 20th century groundbreaking English rock band Led Zeppelin, changing his first name slightly from Roger to Robert. Sorry, that's obviously not true, but I just keep thinking about, I just keep thinking about <laughs> Robert Plant. Just, I got a whole lot of love. I got to get back to the underworld. Sorry. Anyway, uh, uh, Roger, uh, he ran a saloon called the Barracks at Monroe and Wells, and it was uh, a round-the-clock gambling hall and whorehouse. And it was uh, kind of a home base for pickpockets and muggers and thieves fanning out in those tunnels, hiding beneath the city. And there was plenty of uh, young rubes to steal from. Chicago had recently become the nation's railroad hub, and thousands of naive young country bumpkins were pouring into the city from all over the, the cornfields of the Midwest, riding the rails to make their fortune. And then those Chicago tunnel-hiding human rats would spring up from the darkness, rob them blind, and those poor kids would head back to Peoria or Kearney, Nebraska or someplace and, you know, I don't know, work for mom and dad in the, on the farm. Mon, mon, pa, maybe, maybe marry a hot cousin, some shit. I don't know what they did. Well, by the 1870s, the initial seeds of true organized crime are planted by Michael Cassius uh, McDonald. Uh, McDonald uh, owned a tavern at Clark and Monroe known as The Store, which reportedly was the largest liquor and gambling house in downtown Chicago. And some think it was McDonald, not P.T. Barnum, who coined the phrase, there's a sucker born every minute. Sorry, I don't know why I said that in a weird accent. There is a sucker born every minute. And when Michael McDonald wasn't making money in the 19th century, uh, he was singing sweet love songs in the 1980s. Huh? Right? I keep... Forgetting, we're not in love anymore. I keep forgetting. I'm going to stop. Sorry. Michael did know how to spot a sucker, though. He did know how to spot. He may may not have been time traveling, but he did know how to spot a sucker. Uh, He knew how to find some some easy money. Some easy money pouring into Chicago. He he, he took Roger Roger Plant's fucking, you know, little little crime, small-time thing he had going on and fucking blew it up. All right, and uh, check out check out this scam he did. Uh, and, and by the way, before I get into the scam, man, a, a combination of a cunning mind and no moral compass whatsoever uh, just m- must be a fucking great way to live for some people, just to be a sociopath, right? So, so much easier in life to get ahead if you just didn't give a single fuck about anything other than your own bottom line. And this is what I'm talking about. Here's the here's this craziest scam I found out about this guy. When President uh, Lincoln, you may have heard of him, Abraham Lincoln, he was a president of some renown, uh, he called upon Illinois citizens to sign up for uh, duty in the Union Army. A 22-year-old McDonald did not enlist in the Irish Brigade. Uh, instead, he organized groups of bounty jumpers. Check out this sneaky, weasley shit. Uh, these bounty jumpers would collect th- a $300 signing bonus called a bounty that you would get to join the Army, and then they would just desert as quickly as possible. <laughs> they would head back to Chicago with their 300 bucks, uh, split the money with Michael McDonald. I keep forgetting... Uh, enlist under a new assumed name, and then just go do it again. I keep forgetting I can enlist. A- I'm gonna, God, I'm gonna fucking stop and drive myself crazy with that. That thing is just in my head like a virus right now. That that tune. I apologize if it's in yours. It probably is. It's very contagious. Um, but yeah, what a scam, man. Just you know, hey, you guys, you know, and, and this, and, and he would also he would promise these guys immunity when they came back from, because uh, uh, that was punishable by hanging. Then you could be hung. For for you know uh, doing a crime like that, but uh, but then they would come back and he would hide and he'd let him hide in his tunnels, you know, to keep him safe for a while, and uh, you know, keep him com- comfy with some women, some ladies of the night, and uh, you know, let him know that pretty soon the whole mess would blow over. And uh, during the first two years of the Civil War, Illinois supplied more than one hundred thirty thousand men to the Union Army, and McDonald made enough money to purchase a saloon and adjoining gambling parlor in a luxury Chicago hotel. God, how much easier must it have been to be a criminal before you know computers and forensic evidence and cameras? You know, video cameras, government databases, you know, a fingerprint registry kind of thing. Situ- like, like, I've never wanted to go live back in time, but if I was going to be a career criminal, I would fucking definitely want to go back in time. I've watched enough forensic files to know that I can't get away with shit now. There's nothing. I just, like, you know, every once in a while, I don't know if you do this, but every once in a while, like, you'll just, you really fucking be angry at somebody or whatever in your life. And you're like, God, I want you know, if they did this. I should just, I would fucking kill him. I would, or you think about like crazy hypothetical, like if somebody messed with my kid, somebody tried to diddle my kids and I found out before the police found out about the situation, I would fucking kill him. And then I would like, I play out in my brain, like how I would kill him. And it always ends with me getting caught. Like, cause I've watched too many of those shows. You know, I'll be like, well, I'll fucking hide the body out in the woods. I'll bury all my shit. I won't talk to anybody. 
But then I'm like, I probably would fucking talk to somebody. I probably tell one person and they tell one person and eventually get back. Or like a fucking coyote or something. I wouldn't have buried it right and they would find it. And then they would find like the tiniest uh, fingernail clipping that somehow was still on my finger and fell off. And they would fucking trace the DNA and I would be in some database I don't even know about. And they would get me. But back then, ah, just fucking join the army. Bail, rejoin, different name. Bail, rejoin. You can just fucking do whatever you wanted. Okay. So... Uh, McDonald kept running these scams, little gambling halls, until he finally built a proper gambling hall, the store, in September of uh, 1873. And to keep the store going, uh, McDonald bribed local politicians, started putting police on the payroll. The real gangster shit is getting started. All right, politicians, police on the gangster dole. That's a recipe for a crime boss. That's how you become a crime boss. It begins. And the police, they did take care of McDonald, uh, you know in exchange for the bribery. Like when he was arrested for the attempted murder of a rival gambler, a police officer escorted him into jail on a special, you know, in a special carriage, you know, made sure he's nice and comfy, uh, recommended to the judge uh, that McDonald be released on bail immediately. He is. And of course, is almost immediately acquitted on all charges. And then the evening he's acquitted, he holds a banquet for, <laughs> for judges, <laughs> city officials, and police officers. Ah, oh, how nice it must have been to be a huge criminal. Before televised news and social media, you couldn't get away with that fucking banquet today. That's the, oh my god, like uh, might might get those you know police officers and politicians in a little bit of trouble. I mean, can you imagine if, if you obviously tried to kill somebody? Like people had cell phone videos of it or whatever, and then you just get released on bail and then acquitted, and then you just host a party for the <laughs> for the judge and the arresting officers and local politicians. Man, the fucking balls on these guys back then. I mean, like, these were the days where you could just shoot somebody in the face in broad daylight in the middle of the street in front of 100 witnesses. And if you were connected well enough, the case is still going to get dropped. Well, it looks like we're going to have to drop the case. What about the, the 100 eyewitnesses? Well, uh, they, uh, they, they've changed their story. They, they said they made it up. Do, do, you, do you think they were bribed? No, 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 not, not all of them. Uh, just the ones wearing new clothes all of a sudden, loaded up with the nice jewelry. Uh, the, the rest were probably just threatened. Probably just threatened. Uh, everyone coming in today either had something new and shiny or, or they looked very scared. Uh, guessing that dude he tried to kill left town after that, uh, I thought I would. <laughs> if, I, if I realized the dude who just tried to kill me could absolutely just get away with anything, I'd probably, I'd probably take off. And McDonald, yeah, yeah, he was actually never convicted of anything. He died a millionaire at the age of 68 in 1907. Rare feat for a career criminal. And before McDonald died, uh, the prostitution trade he helped grow in Chicago uh, began to see its end in 1893. Criminal activity took a little downturn for a second because the 1893 World's Fair, all right, that the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago, it brought national attention to how fucking filthy and crime-fueled Chicago really was. It was a dirty, dirty city. And uh, William T. Steed, uh, noted English reformer and editor of the Review of Reviews magazine. What a fucking pretentious title that is. Uh, I'm the editor of the Review of Reviews magazine. Uh, he was uh, appalled by conditions in the levee, Chicago's north side neighborhood, where a lot of these brothels were located. And he was appalled by the politics of Chicago. And one year after his arrival, he published a startling expose of vice conditions entitled, If Christ Came to Chicago. Of course it was, <laughs> of course it was titled that. How to get all those... Uh, Victorian, you know, uh, <laughs> women all, oh dear, what if Christ did come to Chicago? He would be so upset. Uh, fear created by the publication of uh, Steed's book uh, uh, went nationwide. It was nationwide, all this fear. And, and the revelations led to the formation of the Civic Federation, Chicago's first important reform movement. And so the, the rising sentiment uh, against the levy is further fueled by tales of white slavery, uh, with, along with this prostitution. Thousands of young girls came to Chicago and, and other big cities at the turn of the century looking for work. And uh, some of them, not being able to find employment, turned to prostitution. But others were actually kidnapped, drugged, and forced into the trade. Uh, the federal government's White Slave Traffic Committee reported in 1907 that 278 girls under the age of 15, god damn, uh, had been rescued from levy dens during a two-month period. That's, that is fucking pretty fucked up. Ha however, I mean, super fucked up, but also, you put that in today's context, I mean, you're, we are, this is a world where, you know, 14-year-old girls got married on a regular basis. So, kids were tra <laughs> treated a little differently. The, the you know, uh, they weren't these protected entities uh, when they were teens that were you know, you were a fucking pedophile. It's like, no, 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 you were, if you were a 20, 25-year-old farmer and you wanted to marry the 14-year-old fucking neighbor's daughter and you're going to take care of her, you were seen as a good dude. So it's not as creepy uh, in context, but still super fucked up. 
Uh, so, so most women who enter prostitute Chicago probably did so voluntarily, but, uh, but even the hint of, of people being forced into this appalled Chicago's religious community. I mean, this is the place where the Moody Bible Institute is formed. Uh, and, uh, the direct pressure was placed upon the federal government to act. And as a result, Chicago Congressman James Mann sponsored new legislation, making the interstate transportation of women for the purpose of prostitution, a violation of federal law. Remember, that's the thing that actually Manson, uh, got charged with was a, a violation of the Mann Act. Um, it comes, comes up in a lot of stories, actually. But uh, by 1914, the last bordello shuttered its doors and the levee was officially closed. So, you know, prostitution and vice in Chicago's over, huh? Of course not. We haven't even gotten to Capone yet. It's, uh, it didn't last long, this reformation. And the very next year, 1915, William Hale Thompson is elected mayor. And he has, uh, let's say, a, a more relaxed uh, moral position regarding prostitution and vice. Uh, than James Mann and, and politicians like Mann. Uh, he, liked, he liked the money. He liked being in the gangster's pockets, and he uses his political power to reduce the police's power in cracking down on brothels, gambling halls, just make it basically vice in general. Uh, uh, whorehouses now camouflaged as hotels, saloons, and cabarets. They, they're, they're back in vogue. And the noble politicians of the area, they just couldn't stop it, man. There's just too much money floating around for people like fucking you know, Mayor Thompson to scoop up. And, and most of these new brothels were located in a neighborhood where a lot of the old brothels were located, the First Ward. Uh, that was a Chicago neighborhood long associated with vice. And under Thompson's new relaxed rule, a new Chicago crime boss would rise up and start the very empire Al Capone would soon inherit and expand. James Colissimo, working in the First Ward during this time, was James Colissimo. Colissimo controlled the vote in the Italian settlement centered around Polk and Clark Streets within the First Ward. Big Jim, he was referred to. He also was involved in prostitution. He operated three levy houses of prostitution, and under Thompson's tenure as mayor, he thrived. He started opening more brothels, making a lot more money. Uh, making so much money, he started wearing a lot of diamonds, and he was sometimes referred to as Diamond Jim. <laughs> Fucking characters back then, man. Yeah, have, you, have, you, have you met my friend Diamond Jim? He's the guy over there with the... Uh, with the, the six girls, the six 15-year-old girls hanging around him and, the, and a cane made out of diamonds. That's Diamond Jim. He's a fine gentleman. What the fuck? But like, uh, like many other successful Italians of the time, uh, Colosimo, uh, he, he soon became the target of the black hand extortion. And this, uh, this black hand extortion he was suffering led him to kind of recruiting some people that ended up uh, eventually bringing over Capone, uh, the black hand, La Manonera was not an organization. It was a practice by which businessmen, other wealthy Italians, uh, were extorted for money. Like intended victims, they were just sent a letter stating that, uh, that violence would come to them if they didn't pay a particular sum of money. And the term black hand uh, came into use because these extortion letters usually contained a drawing of a black hand and other evil symbols, such as a dagger and a skull and crossbones. The Black Hand was not a secret society, but there were a number of black hand gangs. And the black hand was, it was, just, a, it was just a crude method of extortion. You know, which was uh, going on apparently for a long time in southern Italy and uh, Sicily, uh, and there was a lot, you know, a lot of murders associated with it. There was uh, 25 unsolved black hand killings in Chicago in 1910, 33 in 1912, 42 in 1914. You know, so they they followed through on their threats. Uh, 55 bombs were set off in Chicago during the first three months of 1915 to reinforce black hand demands. So you know, it's fucking they were serious. And uh, you know, how much would that suck to be some little deli owner back then? You know, some little little Giuseppo, and you, <laughs> I don't know why you're going to be Giuseppo. Giuseppo, I'm a, I'm a Giuseppo, the daily owner, uh, just immigrated from Naples or Florence or Sicily, and, you know, you're pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, and, uh, sorry, sorry, I, I turned to that accent earlier. For some reason, the only, I feel like the time I can kind of do an Italian accent is if I say Mario. I got to do Mario and Luigi. I don't know why, and I'm, su I'm sure it's a horribly offensive <laughs> like just cartoonish Italian accent, like it's a Mario, it's a pizza pie, a spaghetti. Fuck, it's so fucking. Uh, it's so condescending, I'm sure. So, I, Italian listeners, I, I apologize that all I that I just think of Mario and Luigi and spaghetti. Anyway, this little guy, you know, you're some little deli owner. You're pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, creating new life for yourself in this new land of opportunity with your sweat and tears and blood poured into your work and. And then you get some fucking letter in the mail with a black hand and skull and crossbones demanding money. And then you just, you're just like, God damn it. Because now you know if you don't pay it, you know, you're going to be sleeping with one eye open every night. You're going to be waiting to get your store, your little deli destroyed, your little pastrami place destroyed. Well, you're making the spaghetti and the lasagna. I'm oh, sorry. Uh, you know, you get beaten in front of your family. 
You know, you shot in the fucking head, made an example, blown up. Being extorted sounds terrible. Remind me never to be extorted. All right, well, in order to deal with the black hand threats, uh, Calissimo, he, he sends for a New York relative, and these guys, they always know somebody in New York, uh, Johnny, Johnny Torrio. Johnny Torrio had been a member of New York's Five Points Gang and had dabbled in black hand extortion himself. He knew, he knew a little bit about it. And Torrio's usefulness uh, was going to soon extend beyond protecting Calissimo uh, into overseeing his bordellos. He, he realized that the glory days of the levy had come to an end. Instead of fighting the black hand and paying these local politicians tons of money, he looked for a better deal, and he found one. He reached an agreement with the mayor of Burnham, uh, Illinois, to move a bunch of Calissimo's illicit enterprises to that little suburb. And Because you know, now it's the age of the automobile. People don't mind taking a little ride to go gamble, drink some whiskey, enjoy some female company. Uh, you know, Burnham was only 15 miles directly south of Levy, a short distance by car. Torrio also set up shop in another number of other little suburban areas. And, and then the widespread use of the automobile, or automobile uh, it ushered in this era now known as the Roadhouse. You know, and located in the nearby towns of Chicago Heights and Calumet uh, City and South Chicago and Burnham. And these roadhouses provided all kinds of comforts similar to those of the levee. So now Calissimo and his associates like Johnny Torrio had built the first truly Italian crime syndicate in the history of Chicago. Right? They got this little empire with fucking their little t- different towns they're running, you know, and a little, the little mob hierarchy controlling all this shit. And by the way, if you love this period of history, watch Boardwalk Empire. Uh, almost all those Chicago guys from the 20s are in that show. And they do, they do a great job uh, of mixing a fair amount of historical accuracy and some great... I think it's like the fourth, fifth season or something like that, maybe even third, where they kind of move into Chicago for a lot of it. Anyway, uh, Big Jim, Big Jim Calissimo, uh, he starts to lose interest in his empire. He's making good money right now. He's been doing a little while, and he just doesn't... He's not fucking into it anymore. He's, he's spending less and less time uh, tending to his business. He, he marries this young singer, super hot and charismatic Dale Winter, and he just wants to hang out with her. And, uh, and Clisimo is, is now resisting Torrio's efforts at, at building a liquor syndicate because uh, now, now prohibition has began. And Torrio wants to get into the liquor money. And Clisimo doesn't fucking care. He, you know, sections of the city were already being divided up by other gangs in the liquor distribution territories. Uh, Clisimo, was, he, he just was content to kind of keep what he had. You know, he controlled Vice in the Levy District and in Burnham and these other little suburbs, and he was cool with that. He also ruled Chicago's Street Laborers Union uh, and the city's Street Repairs Union, which were... Uh, under the supervision of some protege of his. And, uh, well, Torrio was not okay with the lack of interest in expansion. And he did what ambitious young gangsters always seem to do when they had the opportunity to make a lot more money than they already were making, and their boss stood in the way of that opportunity. Fucking killed him. He had him killed. Calissimo was found shot in the head uh, May 11th, 1920, and the suspects in the killing were Al Capone. Yep, about time he showed up in this episode. Uh, Capone was uh, the recently arrived Brooklyn assistant of Johnny Torrio. And, uh, yeah, and Frankie Yale of New York's Five Points gang was also a suspect. And so now at 39 years of age, Johnny Torrio, he is the crime lord of the levy. And, and incredibly, like McDonald, much before him, he'd pull off the hardest feat of all for the 1920s gangsters and live a long life. Or I should say early 20th century since McDonald was not a 1920s gangster. But you know what I meant. Well, uh, Torrio ran his criminal organization from the Four Deuces Cafe. That sounds like a place you'd run a criminal organization from. That's, that's meet up at the Four Deuces, boys. Yeah, see, we'll, we'll talk about some business, see? It was at 2222 South Wabash. should will meet up at 2222 Four Twos, Four Deuces, South Wabash. It fucking took me that long to put that together. That that's what, where the name came from. <laughs> I think of poker. Nah, you dumb shit, Dan. It's because there's 2222. South Four Deuces, okay. He was viewed as a, non, uh, a no-nonsense business guy who first, you know, like truly organized crime. He, he was a master strategist, organizer. Uh, he built an emperor that far exceeded Calissimo's. And when the National Prohibition Enforcement Act uh, ended the sale of, you know, alcoholic beverages in 1920, and, and there was a strong, you know, demand, which is what Torrio wanted to get into, uh, the Torrio Vice Syndicate and these other groups around Chicago, were, they were in a very good position to supply the need for liquor. They were well organized. They had political connections to prevent interference from the police. You know, all these concealed agreements they'd been making with local politicians over the years, as well as the experience gained by years of struggle against reform element, elements, you know, where they were brought into service in, into organizing and producing and, and distributing beer and whiskey. They were fucking ready. And now big, big, big money is being made. Uh, by the mid-20s, I don't know if you can hear that uh, siren in the background, by the way. I'm recording this in Chicago. I th- how fitting is that, that I'm talking about all this crime and then literally police sirens out, outside? It's not a sound effect. 
Well, by the mid-20s, the Chicago bootlegging industry uh, that Capone would inherit from Torrio would be making $60 million a year. Now, I said that earlier. I'm going to put that in today's money. $826 million in today's money. Almost a billion a year in Chicago whiskey and beer money alone. Like, holy shit. Well, with lots of money comes lots of greed. No matter how much any of these various Chicago gangs were making, they always wanted more. Except Torrio. Except Torrio. This guy seemed like an interesting cat, man. He saw, you know, I mean, yes, he, he, he killed his boss because he wanted to make a little more money. But now that he's making this good money, he's like, oh, all right, all right, let's fucking, let's slow down. Uh, he saw a great opportunity to let everyone uh, be rich beyond their wildest dreams. He approached the leaders of Chicago's top criminal gangs, and he suggested that they give up burglary, they give up robbery, crimes of violence, knock all that shit off, and let's just focus on the bootlegging. Because he thought that would be the key to success during Prohibition, you know, was they'd have these little territorial sovereignty. They could each have their little empires. And there was a lot of money to be made for everybody. Each gang would control liquor distribution in their own area, not encroach upon the territory of others. And the main gang leaders uh, of the city uh, agreed to Torrio's plan. And things were fucking great for a little while. But then things got ugly. Of course they did. These, these aren't normal businessmen happy with insane profit margins. They're fucking gangsters. Violent, insanely ambitious, criminal unstable, criminally unstable men. And gang wars are going to start up again soon, uh, finally culminating in, in the biggest little gangland uh, battle on Valentine's Day, 1929. All right. Well, 1923, Chicago elects reform mayor William Dever. And he fucking ruins everything that they have going right now. Uh, Dever was one of the few politicians of the 1920s in Chicago, who, who would resist gangster bribery. And within weeks of taking office, his police shut down 7,000 soft drink parlors and restaurants operating uh, as, as speakeasies, stirring up gangsters' hornet's nests and fucking with their new peace agreement big time. All right, Devers' reforms caused Tor- Torrio to move his headquarters to nearby Cicero, Illinois. And while Torrio was vacationing uh, in... Uh, uh, where was he? Vacationing in Italy, um, Capone chose the, the Hawthorne Inn at 4823 West 22nd Street as their Cicero headquarters. And fearing the spread of Devers' reform, Cicero's local corrupt Republican leaders asked Capone to assist them in the 1924 election. So, right, so he, he's, he's moving out of Devers' little reform area. He's like, all right, I got some guys who will uh, take my bribes and work with me. And he goes over to Cicero. And uh, in return for, for helping the Republicans because uh, maintain control of Cicero, he's going to help him get elected. Torrio and Capone would be given a free hand to sell liquor in town. Uh, they wouldn't be allowed to open bordellos, but, you know, they could do all the liquor money they want. So on election day, check this out. 200 Capone gunmen descend on Cicero to ensure that people voted in the right direction. Conditions were so bad that Cook County Judge Edmund uh, Jarecki deputized 70 Chicago police officers to go into Cicero and engage the Capone gang. Frank Capone, the brother of he's killed in this gun, uh, in, in this gun battle that ensues uh, with the police at the polling station at the intersection of 22nd and Cicero. Well, even though his brother dies, uh, he does help, you know, the Republicans win election. And then they keep their side of the bargain. It's estimated the number of liquor and gambler, uh, gambling establishments in Cicero, controlled by the Torrio Syndicate, grows to 161. All right, so brother dies, that sucks, but now they got a new place to do a lot of business. And again, how fucking crazy was life back then? Holy shit, they had it worse than we do now. Like now we worry about possible computer voting fraud and some kind of secretive corruption. What we don't worry about is armed gangsters pointing guns at us and telling us how to vote. Can you imagine that? You get on your little polling place. It's like, I want to vote for... And then some guy's like, this is who you're going to vote for, motherfucker, and just puts a gun to your head. That's Okay, I'm going to watch. Yes, I'm going into the booth with you. You're going to put down that motherfucker. All right, okay, all right, that's what I do. Just like it's unfathomable, that kind of stuff. You know, people just can't get away with doing that kind of stuff now. Not in in this country, not, not at the moment. Who knows how crazy things will get, I guess. But Okay, so outside of uh, Cicero and the area of the Torrio organization, a number of other gangs kind of doing the same thing in their own little areas, right? They're working in collusion with local politicians and police, supporting vice activities, violate, you know, prohibition laws, scrambling for areas to control uh, under Mayor Devers' reform regime. Dion, uh, Dion O'Banion and his followers uh, control Chicago's uh, north side. Klondike O'Donnell and his brothers control the near northwest side. Roger Tuffy, or Tuffy, excuse me, who claimed to be the only bootlegger, uh, to, oh, only to be a bootlegger and not involved in other forms of vice. He controls the far northwest side. The terrible Jenna brothers control the near west side, Taylor Street area. The far west side is controlled by Terry Dugan, Frankie Lake. 
The Valley Gang on the southwest side, both the Irish O'Donnell brothers and the Saltus McCurlin gang, are there doing bootlegging. And, and so the city is just a fucking big collection of these clannish, gang-controlled ethnic neighborhoods. And the, and the gangs were, you know, centered in immigrant areas where the gangsters served as the right arm of the corrupt politician uh, of that area at election time. You know, in exchange for delivering the votes, just like, you know, fucking Capone and Torrio did for, and Cicero, these other gang members, you know, the, they were allowed to continue their criminal activities in whatever neighborhood they were at. It was very much like a scratch, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back kind of operation. Basically the same way politics work today, if I'm going to be totally honest, except that, you know, gangs are now called giant publicly traded corporations. I'm not fucking kidding. You know, you, you let us continue to exploit the working class, both domestically and, and, and abroad, and we'll donate heavily to some uh, nonprofit organization you use to uh, funnel and filter money uh, legally into your own fucking greedy pockets, you son of a bitch. The more things change, man. The more they stay the same in some ways, right? Well, uh, chief among uh, the Torrio and Capone organization's rivals was the young uh, Dion O'Bannon, O'Banion and his followers, including George Bugs Moran. Bugsy Moran! And with the advent of Prohibition, O'Banion and his gang quickly uh, moved to control most illegal liquor distribution on the near north side. So O'Banion's borough was the 42nd and 43rd wards, his, and his ability to deliver to deliver the Irish vote made him an important political figure in ward politics. It said that O'Banion, he would go into saloons on election day and just shoot the doorknobs off of entrances of toilets in order just to randomly remind people that they were going to vote Republican. Like, that's one of the fucking many crazy things he would do. Again, what a different era. And O'Banion, he was clashing with the Jenna forces, you know, because uh, fucking Dever is, is just, he's stirring up all this shit. Uh, steeped up pressure by the Dever administration and forced liquor sales to dwindle, causing greater competition among Chicago's bootleggers. Like, for example, the Jenna brothers had been selling liquor in O'Banion territory. There was reports that O'Banion had been hijacking Jenna trucks. Well, O'Banion has said he made, uh, uh, he made a lot of enemies among the Italians as well, calling them greaseballs and spick pimps, uh, the latter being a reference to the, you know, Torrio and Capone involvement in prostitution. Uh, Banyan also quarreled with the Gloriana gang, as the Italian and Sicilian uh, hoodlums in his own kind of near Northside community were called uh, during the 1924 elections. They supported Democrats. He supported Republicans. And, uh, but despite his opinion of the Italians, O'Banion reportedly appealed to Torrio to intercede in his quarrel with the Jennas, but he wasn't satisfied with the response. As a result, he sets Torrio up. He offers to sell Torrio his share in Sieben's Brewery on 1464 North Larrabee, which he knew was about to be raided. And on the morning of May 9th, 1924, Chicago police do raid the brewery, arresting 31 bootle bootleggers, including Torrio. And they recover 128,000 gallons of beer. O'Banion had set him up, and this was inexcusable. And then on noon, on November 10th, O'Banion is gunned down in his floral shop at 738 North State Street, dead at 32 years old. And the suspects, of course, were the Jenna brothers working at the direction of Torrio and Capone. Now comes the fucking payback. Right? Always the back and forth of these bloodthirsty hyenas. January 24th, 1925, the day uh, a solar eclipse was seen in his hometown of New York City, Torrio himself was shot four times. After returning from grocery shopping with his wife, he's attacked by Jaime Weiss and George Bugs Moran. Fucking Bugsy. Bugsy and Weiss. He's shot in the arm, and he's shot in the jaw, then he's shot in the lung, and then he's shot in the stomach. And then Bugs, Bugs presses his 45 pistol against Torrio's temper, temple, Against his temper. I'm going to shoot you in the fucking temper. I'm going to shoot your temper off of your face. He pushes against Torrio's temple. Tries to pull the trigger. Realizes he's out of bullets. But then to make sure he dies, you know, Weiss kicks Torrio while uh, Moran's hitting him with the billy club. And some, you know, people come. They hear the police or whatever. Like actual police and take off. The sun goes out in New York City. And the lights go out in Torrio and Chicago. Well, not quite. Torrio is one tough motherfucker and he refuses to die. Slowly recovers from his wounds in the hospital. Capone at his side. The kid, the kid he's known since Capone's childhood. We'll find, find out soon here. And, and in true gangster fashion, uh, uh, refuses to name who did it to the police. Then when he finally recovers, he spends a year in jail for breaking up the, uh, or breaking the prohibition laws. Remember, he got caught in that early O'Banion setup. But even though he doesn't die, the beaten, and the murder attempt, it shook him up. So he fled the country after being released from prison, chilling out in New York uh, before, uh, just for a second, before heading off to Italy. And then he hands over his empire to Al Capone saying, it's all yours, Al. Me, I'm quitting. It's Europe for me. Scarface is in control now. Torrio would never be involved in Chicago crime again. He eventually settles into real estate investments back in New York after he comes back from Europe before dying in Brooklyn from a heart attack in 1957 at the age of 75. Long life for a gangster, especially one that was shot four times in one, one day. 
And all this is because fucking uh, Dever. You know, it's funny how, like, you know, they, they try to do prohibition. They think that's going to be a good moral thing for the country. And prohibition uh, leads to way more criminal organization in Chicago. You know, uh, way, way, way more gang clashes because the money involved. And then Dever tries to reform everything. And then he just fucking takes what was a truce. And through his reform, he just fucking stirs the hornet's nest and gets these guys all going at each other, fighting for turf. And, and everybody's really fighting for turf after Torrio leaves, you know? He's components at war now with a lot of Chicago's criminal gangs because everyone wants a piece of Torrio's pie. You know, they see the leader gone. They, they sense weakness. They're going to fucking step in. And so the intense competition for turf uh, results, it turns into what's called Chicago's beer wars of the 1920s. The gangs, you know, they mainly align themselves with the kind of ethnic ties. It would be the Irish and the Polish and the Jewish. You know, all those gangsters, such as the West Side O'Donnells and the Saltist McEarling Gang, you know, joined by Obanian successor Jaime Weiss, the Sicilians, notably the Jennas, and most other Italians stuck with Capone. So did uh, Dugan and his, and his Valley Gang. Or Druggan, I think I called him Dugan earlier. Druggan's a well. I don't like to say Druggan. It sounds like a fake name. I like to say Dugan. Dugan sounds better, but his name is Druggan. So there's those, you know, 1925 beer wars. Uh, amongst the first casualties of the war was Angelo Jenna himself. He dies at the hands of Weiss. Moran and Drucci on May 26, 1925. A month later, Mike Jenna, he's killed by police after he ambushed Moran and Drucci at the corner of Sagamon and Congress. After the fall of the Jennas, their bootlegging activities are taken over by the Ayeo brothers. The Ayeos were a large and extensive family of nine brothers, numerous cousins. The uh, Ayeo, fucking, I don't know how to fucking pronounce this name. I should have looked it up. It's A I E L L O. That's too many fucking cotton vowels, all right? You don't get to have three vowels in a row to start your name. It's, it's ridiculous. I, Aiello? The fucking, I don't like that name. The Aiello and Moran forces, they made a number of attempts on the life of Capone. The Aiello's, I'm just, I'm just going to like, kind of like, I don't know if you're noticing that. I'm just kind of mumbling. They promised $50,000 to anyone who would kill the big fellow as Capone. See, Capone, that's a fuck. That's how you do a name. Capone. Strong consonant sound at the end. Mm. Oh, it's got some meat on it. Not like, what the fuck is that? You change that. Throw in, throw in something. Throw something after the A. Alelos. No, that doesn't sound good. Throw something in front of the A. And after the A. Halelo. You know what? You just fucking change the whole thing. Change the whole thing. It's not a good, it's not a strong last name. If you're listening and that's your last name, I kind of apologize. Now, but you know what? You know that your name is not great. You know that you have to fucking constantly go through life being like, it's actually pronounced. If you have one of those names where you have to constantly, your whole life, be like, it's actually pronounced. Well, you know what? You can't, you can change it. Make it, you change it, change it up if you want. Make it easier on yourself and everyone else. No one fucking cares about your family tree, right? And that's not a knock on anyone's heritage. It's just like, it's fucking annoying to have to say a crazy ass name, <laughs> right? If you go, if, it's, if your name works in your culture, fine. If everyone knows how to say it. You know, if it's the equivalent of Jones somewhere, great. But then if you move somewhere else and it's the equivalent of, then maybe tweak it. Maybe tweak it, you know? Maybe, maybe localize it a little bit. Okay, September 20, 1926, uh, Moran, Weiss, Drucci, easy names, attacked Capone's headquarters at the Hawthorne Hotel in Cicero. Seven cars, no less than 10 feet apart, fire anywhere between 200 and 1,000 bullets into the Hawthorne restaurant where Al Capone was eating lunch, uh, depending on which account of the event you read. Strangely enough, no one's killed. Man, and somehow these gangsters keep doing business. Again, can you imagine the public outcry if seven cars, seven cars of gangsters pull up to a restaurant, any restaurant, I don't care if it's a fucking Olive Garden, I don't care if it's Subway, or you know your five-star steakhouse, and then spray it with 1,000 bullets, the public would go insane. It would be news of the year. But in 1920 Chicago, they were just like, ah, well, you know, this, this shit happens. No, no one died. And they were doing this with Tommy guns. That's why so many bullets were used. Tommy guns, initially produced in 1921, man, these things, this Thompson machine, submachine gun, it was invented to replace the bolt-action rifles uh, used in World War I. And, and really, yeah, it was like the first handheld machine gun. It was like a Gatlin gun that, w that you could fucking carry around. And the thing would shoot at a rate of anywhere from 600 to 1,500 rounds per minute, depending on the model. And you could have like a 20-bullet little stick or a 20 or a 50-bullet, you know, case, you know, uh, shell drum attached. Weighed about 10 pounds. It's easy to hold. The, the original nickname was the Annihilator. 
That's like, that was from like the, the company that made it. They were marketing as like, it's the fucking annihilator. Because that's what it did. It annihilated you. Think of some poor police officer, 1926, 27, Chicago. He's got his little 45 caliber six-shot revolver. Hey, hey there, boys. Hey, boys, hey, boys. Uh-uh, uh-uh, you get away from that restaurant. And then some asshole turns around with a Tommy gun and a 100-round drum. Hey, uh, carry on. Carry on. Proceed. Do as you wish. Do as you wish. And that must have happened a fair amount, because I'm sure these gangsters, had, you know, they were making a lot more money than the police. They probably could afford a lot more Tommy guns. Well, Jaime Weiss, he's quickly killed in retaliation for the restaurant shooting. Now Bugsy Moran, he's solely in charge of the Northside gang. Bugsy Moran, Capone's main rival, the man who tried to kill his mentor earlier, you know, four shots into Johnny Torrio. And uh, for the next several years, Moran does battle with Capone in the streets of Chicago. So now they're down to, like, the two main fucking sides. All right? You got, you got the north side, Bugsy. You got the south side, Capone. And, uh, and they're doing battle in the streets of Chicago for control of the city's bootlegging operations because of that insane amount of money I mentioned earlier. And then on February 14th, 1929, in the SMC garage at 2122 North Clock. North Clock. I don't know why I added Clock. North Clark, the war comes to an end, and so does a long, bloody chapter in Chicago's violent gangland history. So let's jump on out of this timeline. Let's take a closer look at the players involved in the Valentine's Day Massacre and the repercussions it would have in Chicago's underworld. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. Okay, Bugsy Moran. Before we get to the massacre, let's take a look at the, the two main players, uh, George Bugs Moran, Al Capone. Biggest gangsters in 1929 Chicago. Moran had been driving Capone crazy in the late 20s, killing his friends and hired men, burning his nightclubs, hijacking his liquor supplies. You know, he got the nickname Bugsy for having a violent temper, being a little unstable. In addition to being a crazy, cold-blooded gangster, he's also a good Catholic boy who hated Capone for running brothels. You steal, kill, push whiskey, but don't pimp. I'll kill you in front of your family, but what I won't do is offer your newly widowed wife money to sleep with her. I'm a man of principle. It's fascinating where we choose to draw our moral boundaries. Well, uh, George was born August 21st, 1891 in St. Paul, Minnesota, to French immigrants who did well enough to send him to private school, but he didn't like it. At the age of 18, he stopped going to school, joined a juvenile gang. He was arrested three times for robbery by the time he was 21, escaping after the third arrest, making his way to Chicago. All right, and like Capone, pro prohibition made Bugsy rich, turned him from a petty criminal dabbling in robberies and scams into a kingpin. 1971, after the U.S. Uh, entered World War I, you know, President Woodrow Wilson instituted that temporary wartime prohibition in order to save grain for producing food. Congress submitted the 18th Amendment, banned the manufacture, transportation, and sale of intoxicating liquors for state ratification, and uh, granted both the federal government and the state's powers to enforce the ban by appropriate legislation, and then that stuff came out uh, in 1919. The bill was vetoed by President Woodrow Wilson, largely on technical grounds because it also covered wartime prohibition, but his veto was overridden by the House, October 27th, 1919, and uh, the, th the three distinct purposes of this new Prohibition Act were to prohibit intoxicating beverages, to regulate their sale, manufacture, and transport, to ensure the ample supply of alcohol, and, uh, and promote its use in scientific research, and in the development of fuel, dye, and other lawful industries, such as religious rituals, uh, lawful industries and practice. And by 1920, states like Illinois, uh, now they're struggling to enforce this new legislation. They don't have the manpower. And, you know, they clearly weren't paying these guys enough to encourage them to turn down bribes. And the gangsters were getting filthy rich off this entirely new situation. Now let's talk about Al Capone. Alphonse Gabriel Capone is born on January 27th, 1899, in Brooklyn, to working-class parents who had immigrated to America from Naples, Italy. He was a smart, big, strong, brutal kid who stopped going to Catholic school at the age of 14 despite being a promising student after he hit a female teacher who just hit him. And fucking even a young Capone. He didn't stand for disrespect. Before leaving school, Capone catches the eye of neighborhood gangster Johnny Torrio. See, they'd known each other for a long time. Uh, Torrio back then was running local numbers and gambling operations. He left Brooklyn for Chicago in 1909 when Capone was only 10, but he didn't forget about him. And in 1917, when Capone is 18, Torrio introduces him to a New York City gangster, Frankie Yale, the guy who helped fucking kill Torrio's, you know, boss uh, a little bit later. And, uh, and Yale uses Capone as a bartender and bouncer on Coney Island at the Harvard Inn where he got the nickname Scarface. He said something indecent to some woman at the bar one night. Uh, supposedly he said, Honey, you got a nice ass, and I mean that as a compliment, believe me. Well, her brother uh, took enough offense to that to slash him across the face three times with a pocket knife. I guess you, I guess you didn't say shit like that to women in, in, the, in the 1917. Uh, now, I, always, I wondered why Capone didn't kill that guy later, but I guess the guy was a made man. He had mob ties. Uh, the dude's name was Frank Galuccio, 
And the New York crime bosses told Capone, like, hey, man, don't fucking retaliate. You, you said some shit. What happened, happened. So by 1920, Torrio's business in Chicago is expanding. He brings Capone out to help him run the brothels. He also was uh, brought out and all likely to kill, you know, Calissimo. Uh, so Torrio could run the show. And then by 1925, uh, he was running the show and getting really fucking sick of Bugs Moran. And when Moran put a $50,000 bounty on Capone's head, Capone's head in 1929, he decided that Moran had to die. And he ordered a hit on Valentine's Day. So now we're at the massacre itself. Let's get into it. Final showdown between Capone, Moran, Southside versus Northside. The battle for essentially all of Chicago's bootlegging. Early 1929, Moran, longtime alley Joe Ayeo, that fucking name, delivered yet another attack against Capone. They two, the two guys reportedly gunned down uh, Pasquiliano Lordo, one of Capone's men, and Capone then vowed that he would have him wiped out on February 14th. He was staying at his estate outside of Miami at the time, and he put a call into Chicago. Uh, Capone had a very special Valentine uh, that he wanted delivered to Moran. Through a contact in Detroit, Capone arranged for someone to call Moran and tell him that a special shipment of hijacked whiskey was going to be delivered to one of Moran's garages on the north side. Adam Heyer, a friend of Moran, owned the garage, and it was used as a distribution point for north side liquor. Sign on the front of the building at 2122 North Clark Street read SMC Cartage Company Shipping and Packing, Long Distance Hauling. Moran received the call at the garage on the morning on February 13th and arranged to be to meet the truck the next day. So now we get to morning, February 14th, Valentine's Day. Group of Moran's men gathers at the Clark Street garage. One of the guys is Johnny May, ex-safe cracker, who had once been hired by Moran as an auto mechanic. He was working on a truck that morning with his dog, a German shepherd named Highball. What a great fucking name for a dog. Highball, get over here. Uh, Highball's tied to the bumper. In addition, six other men wait for the truck of the hijacked whiskey to arrive. We got Frank and Pete Gusenberg, who are supposed to meet Moran and pick up two uh, empty trucks to drive to Detroit. Pick up smuggled Canadian whiskey. Got James Clark, Moran's brother-in-law, Adam Heyer, Al Weinshank, uh, Reinhardt Schwimmer, a young optometrist who had befriended Moran and hung out around the liquor warehouse just for the thrill of rubbing shoulders with gangsters. All right. You're an optometrist who wants to fucking be a gangster. Fair enough. Okay, so George Bugs Moran, he's late for the meeting that morning. He was due to arrive at 1030, but he didn't leave for the rendezvous uh, in, in the, you know, until several minutes after that. And as now as these seven men are waiting outside, inside the warehouse, they have no idea that a police car has just pulled up outside. Or that Moran spots the car. Moran, just him being late saved his life. He saved his life. He spots this police car pulling up in front of this garage. And he's like, uh-uh. And he just fucking just, you know, heads on down. I mean, I'm, I'm going to fucking get out of here. I'm not going not gonna to go in there. Well, five men get out of the police car, two of them in uniforms, three in civilian clothing. They enter the building, and a few months, moments later... The clatter of machine gun fire breaks the stillness of that snowy morning. Soon after, five figures emerge and they drive away. May's dog inside of the warehouse begins barking and howling. Uh, Cold-blooded as Capone's men were, I, I do find it interesting that they were like, now, nah, leave the dog alone. Don't shoot the dog. Well, they, they shot the shit out of the other guys. Uh, more than 160 machine gun casings would litter the crime scene. And I'll post a picture too up of the crime scene at timesuckpodcast.com uh, for those curious enough to look. Ugh, it's pretty, pretty grisly. I mean, these guys got shot a lot of times. John May, uh, he was shot 10 times, including a shotgun blast um, and a 45 pistol to the head. Adam Heyer is shot 15 times, head, neck, chest, stomach, ex extremities, just human Swiss cheese. Uh, James Clark is shot nine times, mostly in the chest and stomach. Weinshank shot nine times, seven times in the back. Gusenberg takes a dozen bullets. You know, Peter Gusenberg. Frank Gusenberg takes 14 Three glancing wounds, 11 rounds entering his body. Uh, Schwimmer ends up with a total of 25 entrance and exit wounds. Now, 16 of those were shotgun pellets, but nine extra fucking bullet wounds. They shot the fuck out of these guys. You know, they opened up on them with Thompson submachine guns. You know, one of them had a 20-round, you know, a clip. Another had a 50-round drum. And uh, they were thorough, man. They had some shotguns, too. Spraying their victims left and right. Continuing fire after all seven hit the floor. Seven men, they were just ripped apart. Uh, two shotgun blasts afterwards all but obliterated the faces of John May and James Clark. I guess they wanted to make real sure those guys were dead. Uh, the, yeah, the murdered men included Moran's best killers, Frank and Peter Gusenberg. And, and, and Frank actually uh, survived the attack for a little while. Reportedly, Frank, a dude who was shot 14 fucking times, still alive, when real police officers, not the fake ones who showed up to do the killing, uh, made it to the scene. When he was asked who shot him, the mortally wounded Gusenberg kept his coat of silence, man. He said, quote, no one. Nobody shot me. Gangster till the end. And no one was ever uh, brought to trial for these murders. No one to this day knows for absolute certain who did it. Not for certain. Everyone agrees Capone must have been behind it. Uh, 
You know, but he was never charged, never confessed. Uh, police suspected him. Uh, police suspected Capone associate and known hitman John Scalise, but he himself was murdered not long afterwards, May 8th, 1929, in a gangland killing. Uh, Capone was suspected of ordering that hit, too, by the way. It's all speculation. Jack McGurn, one of Capone's uh, buddies and crime associates, uh, was suspected, but his girlfriend gave him an alibi. Uh, a Chicago hitman named Fred Killer Burke. What a fucking nickname. And what was your nickname again? Uh, Killer. Uh, okay, uh, I'm going to do it. I'm going to be very nice to you. Uh, Fred Killer Burke was suspected. Uh, when the police investigating a separate crime in December 1929, they found machine guns uh, at his place. Early, early ballistics testing uh, proved that they were the guns used in the Valentine's Day massacre. However, Burke fled. By the time he was caught, he was charged with a totally different murder, and he, and he was given life for that, and he just never confessed to the Valentine's Day massacre. And he died in prison in 1940, so we'll never know. Uh, Bugs Moran. So let's talk about the aftermath, because Bugs Moran gets away. He was the target for the hit, and he didn't get killed, but he might as well have been. The key members of his gang are all dead now. Uh, you know, they're, they're all gone. Jack McGurn, he was killed in a burst of machine gun fire, though, on the seventh anniversary of the massacre, Valentine's Day, 1936. Bugsy probably likely got him as a little bit of payback. But uh, the Northside gang he ran by then had dissolved into a shadow of its former self. This is all pretty quickly after the massacre, and Moran went back to his kind of pre-prohibition ways of petty crime, fraud, robbery. 1939, he's convicted of conspiracy to make a, uh, and cash $62,000 worth of American Express checks. He's freed on appeal when he posts bond, but he flees, captured, not released until 1943. By the 40s, only 17 years after being one of the richest gangers in, uh, gangsters in Chicago, Moran was almost penniless. And in July 1946, he's sentenced to 10 years in prison at the Ohio Penitentiary for robbing a bank messenger of 10 grand. And then on January 11th, 1957, shortly after his release, he's, he's arrested again, arrested right away again on accounts of bank robbery, sentenced to another 10 years. And then two weeks later, he dies of lung cancer at the age of 65. So yeah, he must have known he was going to die, and he's just like, fuck it, I'll just rob some stuff again. At the time of his death, Bugs was only worth about 100 bucks. 100 bucks! This is one of the biggest prohibition gangsters there was for a while. Very quiet end for one of the loudest gangsters in Chicago in the 20s. Uh, the Capone after aftermath, not good either, didn't work out for him. Uh, he failed to appear uh, before a federal grand jury despite being subpoenaed uh, on March 12, 1929 for involvement, uh, uh, you know, in the uh, Valentine's Day massacre, and uh, he didn't show up, and now the police weren't going to look the other way. Public, they, the public had finally had enough. Uh, there was a public outcry for law enforcement to put a permanent stop to Chicago gang violence. Like, seven dudes being gunned down with Tommy guns. They were like, all right, that's our limit. If you would have killed five, we would have been fucking cool, but no more. Uh, according to a New York Times piece that ran shortly after the, after the Valentine's Day events, local law enforcement officers reacted by taking an aggressive stance on smothering gang activity, gaining control, and restoring justice. So as a result of the massacre, federal authorities they had reasons to begin investigating Capone, and, uh, and now he's a different jurisdiction because he wasn't just in Chicago. He you know, thought he called him from Florida. That let them be involved in a different level. And then Capone begrudgingly appears before the grand jury in Chicago on March 20, 1929, completes his testimony, and then as he leaves the courtroom, he's arrested uh, on contempt of court. And, uh, you know, they just wanted to get him on something. And it was an offense, which the penalty could be a year in prison and $1,000 fine. He posts post bond. He is released. But now they're tracking his every move. The FBI is up his ass. And on March 17, 1929, uh, Capone and his bodyguard were arrested in Philly for carrying concealed deadly weapons, 16 hours uh, uh, later, they'd each been sentenced to terms of one year each. Capone serves his time, released in nine months for good behavior on March 17, 1930. So now he has this big fucking, you know, crime empire. He has control of all of Chicago, but he, he can't stay out of jail now. Uh, that probably was his, his best year, though, uh, between March 17, 1930 to February 28, 1939. That was the length of time he got to enjoy his reign. Because now he's found guilty in federal court on contempt of court charge, and he's sentenced to six months in the Cook County Jail. And then while they're fucking holding him in for that, the, tre the U.S. Treasury Department, they're cooking up these tax evasion charges. I shouldn't say cooking up. They were real, but they're, they're figuring it out. And, uh, and, and, and they, they get him with it. On, on June 16th, 1931, he pleads guilty to tax evasion, prohibition charges, and he, that's, that's, that's fucking it for him. Uh, on October 18th, 1931, he's convicted, and uh, no November 24th, he's sentenced to 11 years in federal prison, and the six months contempt of court sentence was supposed to be served concurrently, uh, he's trying to appeal. He's waiting for appeal. And uh, while he's uh, waiting for appeal, he's, he's put in the Cook County Jail. He gets denied appeal. And then he's moved to a U.S. penitentiary in Atlanta. And then he serves his sentence uh, there initially and then moves to The Rock, as we all know, Alcatraz. That's where he finishes serving his term. And, and, and November 16th, 
1939, Al Capone is finally released after having served seven years, six months, and 15 days, paid all his fines, all his back taxes. He was never arrested for murder, and he was still pretty young, and you might think, okay, well, now he could go back to his life. No, he's got fucking syphilis. He's got late-stage syphilis, and he's fucked. He's suffering from uh, parasis uh, derived from syphilis, which is an inflammation of the brain, leads to paralysis and dementia, and he just deteriorated to a shell of his former self. And he, he goes to Florida. Uh, by the end, he had the mentality uh, before he died, I guess a 12-year-old. His brain is, is shot, and, um, and he dies of a, of a stroke and pneumonia on January 25th, 1947, and he's only 48. Strange, strange end for the biggest gangster Chicago had ever seen. And man, syphilis is no joke, man. If you don't get it fucking treated, it, uh, yeah, it can like paralyze and uh, destroy your brain. And people didn't know how to treat it back then. Wow. So end of an era, man. So while Capone was in prison, prohibition goes away in 1933. And in the era of bootlegging, all the gangland money that went along with it. There's actually more murders now than there were then. But it's different. It's like little ragtag neighborhood gangs primarily fighting over scraps. You know, and the mafia didn't go away either, but it just never achieved the same level of glamour and power as it did in the 20s. That all went away on that Valentine's Day. And so now, uh, before we go away, it's time for some top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, Al Capone's bootlegging operation alone made $60 million a year in liquor money alone in the late 1920s Chicago when you could buy a house for six grand. And that doesn't count all the other vice income he had. That means if Capone kept half of his liquor money, which isn't a crazy stretch, considering he's the top guy and they're paying nothing in taxes, he could buy 5,000 homes outright in a year. In 1929, a Model T cost 500 bucks. He could buy 60,000 Model Ts for $30 million. He had so much money, he could just like literally just drive each of them. Like uh, Every time he drives, he could just leave the car wherever he gets, just you know, leave it there. He just goes and he parks. And instead of driving the car home, he's just like, fucking buy me a new car. And he could do that every fucking several times a day, all year, and still have plenty, plenty of money. Number two, uh, in the Valentine's Day Massacre, seven different men were each shot at least nine separate times. And if you think that's too many times, one of them almost lived, telling the police who showed up that, you know, nobody shot him. Now, you can't shoot a 1920 Chicago gangster once or twice. If there's one thing I learned in this episode is that. You have to, you have to truly fill them full of lead to get rid of them. Number three, Chicago's criminal underworld literally rose up out of the mud. On the last day of 1855, newly created Chicago Board of Sewage Commissioners finally came up with a plan to lift Chicago out of the ooze. Engineer uh, Chesbro of Boston, whom the board had hired to study the problem, recommended installing a storm sewer system, the first comprehensive sewage system in the entire nation. But since the city was only three or four feet above the level of Lake Michigan, underground sewers would not drain properly. So they raised the city. They raised it from 4 to 14 feet, man, to raise larger buildings. An enterprising newcomer to the city named George Pullman, right, the guy who would go on to uh, amass a fortune with his Pullman sleeping car with the trains, he, he came up with a system using these jack screws, these enormous fucking screws up to three tons in weight, you know, attached to a metal base, metal top, and, and he'd have, like, you know, thousands of them. And you put them around all these parts of the foundation, and then you would just turn the screw. You'd have them all kind of turn at once, like do one rotation, and just slowly and surely lift these buildings with people still in them, people still working and stuff, as the building is slowly being raised, millimeter by millimeter, way up into the air, and then just rebuilding the foundation. Incredible. Who knew that would lead to such you know, massive criminal activity? Number four. By 1930, after destroying his rival gang in, in the Valentine's Day Massacre, 31-year-old Al Capone, is now, he now controls the entire Chicago criminal underworld. You know, he's making over $100 million a year, but because uh, of the heat the Valentine's Day Massacre brought from the feds, a 33-year-old Capone would be serving time in an Atlanta penitentiary, soon to be moved to Alcatraz, where his mind would deteriorate from syphilis. He was apparently bullied by other inmates, proving that, you know, sometimes when you win, you lose. If they just could have divided up the spoils like Toria wanted and just fucking kept it, if, if Dever wouldn't have fucking stirred the hornet's nest, how long would those Chicago crime bosses kept running those rackets and making the millions? Who knows? You know? So the lesson from that is, I think, if you ever find yourself making what would be about $800 million a year in some sort of criminal racket and everything's fucking smooth, be cool about it. Don't rock the boat. Number five, if you get syphilis, don't wait to get it treated. While it was very difficult to uh, treat when Capone had it, doctors figured out that a healthy dose of penicillin uh, would just clear it up a long time ago. So, you know, you can't ignore the sores on your wiener. 
or and or vagina, you know, or you know you can I guess if you want to just slowly go insane or become paralyzed or both, or you could just make a twenty dollar copay and have a few uncomfortable moments with the doctor when you tell him that you have syphilis, or her, you know, and then you can just find a new doctor because you probably don't want to go back to your doctor after they know you have syphilis because I, I'd imagine that'd be a tad embarrassing. But get it checked out. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Well. Thank you for listening, everybody. Uh, and thank you so much for the iTunes reviews. Uh, keep pouring in. I really appreciate it. I hope you had fun uh, with this little Valentine's Massacre episode. You know, I felt like it was a little different, you know, examining one little kind of event again. We haven't done that in a while. And, uh, and if you want to know when the next episode of Time Suck uh, will be, if you want to know what it's going to be before it comes out on Monday at noon Pacific time, please follow me on either Twitter at D underscore Cummins Facebook at Dan Cummins Comedy or on Instagram at Dan Cummins Comedy. I also post uh, tour dates at those places, such as Hyenas Comedy Club in Plano, Texas, February 23rd to 25th, the Tacoma Comedy Club in Tacoma, Washington, March 2 through 4, Charlie Goodnights in Raleigh, North Carolina, March 9 through 11. Lots more places coming up after that. So please, please keep rating the show. Keep telling your friends. Keep subscribing. We are building this thing. I really have some cool plans I want to share a couple months down the road. To make this, you know, uh, a lot more fun, more interactive. And we're, and we're getting there. It's, it's growing. It's growing. And, uh, and have a great Valentine's Day and Valentine's uh, week, time suckers. I, I hope it is a lot less bloody than the one I just described. And, uh, and find, find some solace in this episode. Because, you know, even if your Valentine sucks, be thankful that at the very least you didn't get lit up with 9 to 14 bullets from a Tommy gun. See you next week, everybody. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support so you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.